Hello, everybody, and welcome to your live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the uh, Director of Culinary Instruction uh, here at Ruby, and I'm also one of your chef instructors uh, in your courses. And um, today is my open office hours. You know, what I'd like to do to start off uh, with today is to address a a topic of conversation first, uh, and then I'll jump into the questions, okay, in just a couple of minutes. And um, I know that, um, you know, many of you have just several days ago uh, enrolled in the Forks Over Knives course, and um, some of you might just be getting started, and uh, others uh, of you in the other courses like Pro Cook and Pro Plant uh, may have started recently as well. Now, um, you know, as you get started uh, with the Ruby courses, um, you're going to uh, understand that our approach is one that focuses on uh, really the, the, the foundational building blocks um, of cooking. And that is uh, cooking methods and the supporting techniques in the kitchen. Okay, and recipes become secondary in our world. Uh, and so it's a, a bit of a change from the way that many people are used to approaching cooking, where the recipe is sort of their guiding light. Okay, now in our context, again, as you go through the lessons, uh, you're going to learn about. Um, uh, in this case, cooking methods, moist heat methods, dry heat methods. Moist heat methods might include simmering or steaming, for example, that use water. And dry heat cooking methods uh, don't use water. So deep frying, okay, as well as sauteing and grilling are examples of dry heat methods of cooking. And... Um, uh, at the at the basis of each of these methods, and we think about cooking in general, okay, uh, is going to be the control of time and temperature. That's really um, at the core of cooking when it comes to applying uh, cooking methods. Of course, there are many other supporting techniques that are part of food preparation, but at the core, it's all about the control of time and temperature. So how much time uh, are you going to cook this item and how intense will the heat be? And uh, those two variables um, need to be manipulated by you. So your job, right, uh, as the student is to focus on those two items as well as so much more. Um, but, but think about those two variables as you practice. And also keep in mind that repetition is going to be very important to uh, your deepening understanding and your growing confidence in the kitchen. Okay. And, um, you know, another uh, uh, topic that I want to touch upon is, is a supporting technique. And this is uh, this activity of heating a saute pan. And you're going to see lessons that um, focus on this activity, and we'll call it uh, sometimes the mercury ball test or the water ball test. And, and basically, it's a, a tool of sorts. It's, a, it's a, a way for you to begin to understand the pan that you're using and 
how it heats up. Okay. And uh, the, the basic uh, technique uh, goes like this. Uh, you will put uh, your pan on the burner and uh, turn the fire on to a, a moderately low temperature. And slowly, as the pan heats up, uh, you will um, put a small amount of water. And we recommend about an eighth of a teaspoon. So just um, a couple of drops, really. Uh, and you're going to observe how that water acts and reacts in the pan. And you're going to do that in intervals um, as the pan heats up. And again, the way that water acts in the pan will change. And um, now, uh, a, a one word of caution, as the pan heats up to a pretty high temperature, um, if you're using oil when cooking, okay, you'll want to use a high smoke point oil. Uh, and then put just a small amount of oil to see if the temperature of the pan is under that smoke point for that oil you're using or if it's exceeded the smoke point. And if it's exceeded the smoke point, you'll know it because the oil will burn and create smoke. Okay, now the other thing that comes to mind here is one of safety and that is uh, oils have a flash point. And a flash point is the temperature at which that particular oil will ignite. Okay, and uh, every once in a while, um, rarely, thank goodness, but every once in a while, I uh, will hear some feedback from a student that says, hey, uh, I heated my pan up according to this water ball technique method, and I put my oil in the pan for sautéing, and it burst into flames. Um, so understand that there's um, a safety concern at the high end of this temperature range and that as we're working with this technique, right, of heating up the pan, we need to be careful as the pan gets very hot. And if it is hot, then pull it off the burner or turn the fire off. If you have an electric um, range, then just slide the pan off of the burner and allow uh, the pan to start to cool down. Um, if you want to hasten the cooling process, then you can actually add food to the pan off the heat because the pan itself will be hot, still holding lots of heat, and then just start your cooking process. Um, if you use that technique to cool down your pan, I do not recommend putting very small cuts of items like uh, small dice or brunoise uh, because those things could burn. And avoid uh, putting uh, garlic and onion in at, that, at those high temperatures because those things are very likely to burn. Um, but uh, larger pieces, which will be significantly cooler than the pan, will absorb the heat, thereby dropping the temperature of the pan. Keep in mind that at some point, uh, you're going to need to bring the pan back onto the fire source to continue your cooking process. Okay? Um, do not um, place uh, an overheated pan or a very hot pan into cool water or do not put cool water into the pan because you will uh, risk damaging the pan, okay? And that'll be most notable um, if you're working with a stainless steel pan, um, probably all of which today um, are made with layers of other metals like aluminum and 
uh, copper that are sandwiched together, right, for even heat distribution. If you uh, heat up the pan, put cold water in it, then you're going to risk warping uh, those, those layers, okay? Um, so please don't do that. All right. So, um, and then the uh, the next part of this um, water ball technique that I want to talk about is that it's intended as a temporary uh, technique or tool of sorts for you to use as you learn to heat up your pan. Uh, in other words, while you're going through this exercise, please engage with what's happening and feel the heat of the pan right, with the palms of your hands, on your forearms, and also that radiant heat on your face so that um, you can start to put these pieces together, right, uh, the, the heat that you actually feel uh, versus the sound that the food makes when you put it in the pan, as well as the other things that the, the food is doing in the pan, um, whether it's caramelizing quickly or burning or not doing anything, um, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. So your ultimate goal is to stop using the water ball test and to start cooking by feel. Okay. Uh, also note that if you do not use a stainless steel pan, um, your results will look different than our video lessons. Okay. Which focus on stainless steel pans. Um, cast iron and, um, you know, other types of materials um, will not create the nice, clean, sort of mercury-like water ball that stainless steel does, okay? And so if you're using other types of pans, then you're going to need to rely on feel uh, even more so uh, from, from the get-go. And uh, go slow, uh, as you heat the water up and go ahead and just add some food product to your pan to see how it actually acts and reacts in that environment. Okay. And then you can start to use your pan and learn how to use your pan um, just like someone that's using stainless steel. Okay. Uh, so that's my uh, sort of introductory talk. Uh, for those of you in particular that just started out uh, in your courses over the last few days. Now, I'm going to transition to the questions uh, for today's uh, open office hours. All right. So to start off with, from Becky, um, <clears throat> who writes, uh, can you show how to rinse quinoa before cooking and what the best strainer is. Okay, so um, I'm not uh, set up to show you what that looks like here, but I can talk you through it. Okay, I'm going to start off by saying that um, a, a lot of quinoa these days on the market is pre-rinsed. So uh, it's not always necessary to rinse it again. I'll leave that up to you, though. Okay, um, the next thing that I'll mention is that... Um, uh, some of us out there have a very sensitive palate, uh, sometimes across the board, uh, but sometimes when it comes to particular tastes um, and, uh, and even aromas as far as our nose is concerned as well. And one of the tastes that some people are particularly sensitive to is bitterness. And those uh, saponin uh, compounds on the exterior of... Um, uh, the quinoa grains uh, are bitter. 
And after, or, or let me, I should say for the store-bought items that are pre-rinsed, sometimes uh, people can still pick up bitterness, uh, in which case you want to go ahead and, and rinse that again if you would like to, okay? Um, but otherwise, if your preference is simply to rinse quinoa, or if you're buying quinoa that has not been pre-rinsed, then consider rinsing it. And um, you can uh, do that by putting it in a bowl uh, and then just pour some, some water into that bowl. And, and uh, you can let it soak if you want to, if you've got the time. And, um, you know, uh, the, the timings vary quite a bit. I've never done, you know, actual tests on what the minimum time requirement is, but um, you can certainly see some results after just a few minutes, okay, um, in terms of a little bit of uh, frothiness that uh, comes to the surface. And then uh, as you um, strain the quinoa, you need to simply use a strainer that has um, a mesh size that's smaller than the grains, okay? And um, I'm going to take a bit of a tangent here <clears throat> and say that in the kitchen, one of the most common sort of tool categories that we use is the strainer. And uh, if you end up doing a, a wide variety of cooking, uh, different styles of cuisines and, and uh, you know, so on and so forth, um, I find that one of, you know, the, maybe the tool category that you end up um, having many varieties of is the strainer. Um, sometimes it's, uh, it's the diameter of the strainer. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, with a handle or without. Sometimes it's um, a, a drum sieve with a straight edge to it. And then the, the, um, the straining um, screen on top of that. Uh, sometimes uh, it is the size of the mesh uh, to suit the job. And so in this case, if you go online um, or if you run down to a, a nearby kitchen uh, tool supply store, um, you can look at these different strainers and choose one that's going to be very tight um, so that the small quinoa grains won't fall through. Okay. Now, uh, if you don't have a strainer, then you can use cheesecloth. And I've even heard folks using a coffee press, um, uh, which has a pretty fine strainer, okay, to strain the water from your quinoa. Um, so give that a try, please. And uh, you're bound to find some method that's going to work for your situation. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up is a question from Kathy, who says, I need help on knife sharpening, please. I have Vustoff knives that I sharpened using the Ruby instructions. They are better, but still not back to the wicked sharpness of a new knife. Is it possible to return a knife to that original sharpness? So let me uh, answer your uh, last question first with an, uh, uh, an enthusiastic yes. You can absolutely sharpen your knife however you want to. And um, it's really going to be based upon one's skill. Okay, now um, I am going to approach your scenario here with the assumption that we're using whetstones. Okay, and um, 
uh, in this scenario, the, uh, the first thing I always say is that uh, whetstones have a, a learning curve. And um, sometimes it's long and sometimes it's a sharp learning curve that we get to, uh, to figure out. And I always recommend to students uh, also that if you're going to start using uh, whetstones, that you consider a practice knife, right? One that um, you don't mind sort of beating up, so to speak, um, as you learn to use the stones because stones uh, can inflict pretty quick and severe damage to a knife if they're used improperly, okay? Um, the results can be astounding. But on the other hand, once you learn to use whetstones, the results can be fantastic. And uh, so it sounds like, uh, Kathy, that you're um, somewhere still on that learning curve. I'm not talking about uh, uh, damaging your knife at all, but if you've um, experienced a sharper blade than it was, but not as sharp as it was brand new uh, coming from the factory, then I'm guessing that you would benefit from more practice, okay? Now, in terms of, you know, things to keep in mind, um, I happen to have a knife within reach here. Um, and, uh, you know, you get to choose the angle, right, at which you apply the bevel to the blade. And, you know, if, if you look at the blade here, Right along this edge here, you can see it's a little bit shinier, okay? That's the bevel and that's the cutting edge. And um, that's what we're working on. And uh, as you adjust your angle on the stone, you can create a bevel that's very wide or you can create one that's much sharper. And that's going to reflect uh, the sharpness of the blade, um, as well as um, um, how long the edge may last, okay, before it needs sharpening again. And, um, you know, very often, you know, we'll say, hey, you know, shoot for something between maybe 15 and, and 20 degrees off of the stone. Um, and that's probably a good place to be in. Um, we're typically going to sharpen evenly, okay, on, on either side. Uh, at least with um, most knives, okay? Some knives have a single bevel, uh, but with uh, most Wusthofs and, and other European knives, uh, you're going to have uh, a double bevel that's even on both sides. And um, the other thing is when you apply the knife to the stone, all right, you want to keep the knife moving across the stone nice and evenly as if you were a mechanical jig holding the blade in place. In other words, if your knife starts to rock a little bit like this as you pulled across the stone, then you're going to develop rounded bevels, okay, which are going to feel um, less sharp, okay? So your goal is to, to create nice straight bevels but that requires that the knife really be kept nice and straight coming across and at the same angle, nice and straight, flat, okay, coming across the other direction. And again, that takes a lot of practice. There are jigs 
that you can buy that will help you keep the blade at a constant angle coming across the stone. Um, I don't use one. I know some people that do. I'll leave that up to you to experiment. Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, ultimately it takes a, a lot of practice to get up that learning curve. And then it takes some uh, repetition, right? Or uh, sort of, you know, ongoing practice, um, you know, with, with some uh, not so long time intervals um, so that you can maintain your skills. Okay. Because if you wait, for example, a year before you sharpen your knife again, then you're going to have to go through a little practice session again before um, that muscle memory comes up, comes back again. Okay. So I hope that's helpful. And um, I hope that's encouraging uh, because you can get there with practice. All right. And uh, next up, we've got a question from Roy who says, I would love to make a pizza crust that is at least partially made with cauliflower and doesn't contain oil like at Whole Foods. Aside from not having a professional oven with very high temperature, is there a special trick that I'm not aware of? Thanks. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, we've got uh, a Ruby um, all cauliflower, 100% cauliflower pizza crust recipe, which um, is uh, posted for you right now um, on your screen. And uh, you can follow the link to that. And, um, you know, this particular uh, crust uses, um, it might use chia seeds um, as, a, as the binder um, for the small pieces of cauliflower, like that cauliflower rice, so to speak. Uh, uses, uh, you know, that, that sticky gelatinous substance as a binder, um, you know, as you set it up on the sheet pan, uh, essentially for drying. And um, you're going to line that sheet pan with a sill pad or uh, some parchment paper. And while the recipe does not talk about lightly oiling the uh, the uh, silicone baking mat or the parchment paper, you might consider doing that. Um, sometimes uh, uh, I have had better success with a light coating of oil. Uh, otherwise, some of those gelatinous substances um, can stick even to uh, a silicone baking mat. Okay. But, um, you know, that aside, just another um, comment that I'll make on this recipe is um, give it some thickness. Okay. Uh, so that the, the finished product has some structure and that you can flip it or remove it from the sheet pan without the whole thing crumbling apart. Uh, and with, you know, most any sort of cooking, right, the repetition and experience uh, is going to bring you deeper understanding and greater success. So be prepared to make it perhaps more than once, okay? Um, I mean, otherwise... Uh, you know, a household oven is quite adequate. You know, household ovens uh, typically heat up to, you know, 450 or four or 500 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, which is plenty hot for any sort of pizza crust activity. And certainly for the drying um, that's called for, for this particular recipe. Of course, if you're using an oven uh, with some uh, 
relatively high heat, you're going to get some caramelization, some browning, which is um, also flavor uh, as well on the finished product. Um, we've also had students that will use this uh, recipe and um, but put it into a dehydrator and uh, that works as well. And so there's a couple of ways forward uh, in terms of extracting the moisture, um, which is essentially what the baking process does, okay, in this case. All right. So please give that a try. And um, I mean, otherwise, you don't want to add oil to the cauliflower mixture itself because that um, acts as a lubricant and acts um, against the binding properties of that gelatinous substance, whether it's chia seeds or something else that you might be using. Okay. Uh, happy cooking to you. Thank you. All right. Uh, the next question. Uh, what's the best way to have spices cling to air popped popcorn without the use of oil? Okay, uh, this is um, this is kind of a fun question because we do a lot of this sort of um, air popped um, popcorn with spices here at home. You know, as a, a very quick and satisfying snack, um, and. You know, what I have found is that dry kernels will leave a lot of spices at the bottom of the pan and um, uh, or the bowl or, you know, whatever that vessel is that you're using. And the, the two methods that I have found success with is a little bit of oil uh, or some sugar. So the sugar will melt onto the surface um, of the popcorn, and then the spice adheres to that, okay? Um, perhaps there's a, a happy middle ground that you can work with, um, or maybe there's just a, a different way that I'm unfamiliar with that you might uh, stumble upon through your own experimentation, okay? But those are uh, my experiences to share with you today. Thank you. And next one uh, is from Ruth, who writes, what plant-based meals or menus go best with edible flowers? Okay, uh, interesting question. And I'm going to turn this around, okay, and consider this as uh, what edible flowers go with plant-based meals or menus. And that's going to be uh, you know, the, the, I think the question that I've, um, you know, come across a number of times and that's, um, probably most common in the kitchen. Okay. Whether it's plant-based cooking or something else. All right. Um, edible flowers have some different aromas and different flavors and, and, uh, tastes. And, um, you know, sometimes they're pretty mild and, um, they're not particularly noticeable. Uh, other times they're bitter, sometimes they're sour, and then, of course, uh, they have different aromas that we're probably familiar with, okay? And um, they really can go with a, a lot of different foods, okay? Uh, I mean, number one, uh, edible flowers are used for a garnish, and, you know, in which case, you can place a, a whole flower, you know, at the edge of a presentation and serve it, uh, or you can pluck the petals and sort of 
sprinkle those on top as a finishing touch. Um, in both cases, they're probably not going to be very noticeable, okay, for the diner. And um, there are, and so you might be able to use whatever you want, okay? But it's always a good idea to taste the flowers ahead of time. Um, I recommend that with any ingredient that you're using. If you're not certain uh, how it tastes on its own, go ahead and just put it in your mouth. Um, I have always told my students, when in doubt, put it in your mouth and uh, just taste it. If you don't like it, you can always expel it, okay? Uh, and that way you'll know if it's very sour or very bitter or just lightly so or something else. And uh, then you can proceed from there, okay? Now, another way to approach uh, the use of edible flowers is as a more significant ingredient. And we will uh, commonly see edible flowers incorporated into salads. And, you know, these would be um, of the um, leafy green style of salads. In other words, not a potato salad, right? But um, some sort of a tossed green or even a, a somewhat composed salad, but uh, made of greens. And in this context, we can uh, put in flowers uh, or again, we can pluck the petals and just toss those in the salad with the greens, okay? And uh, in a similar manner, uh, also consider herbs. And they can be whole leaf or they can be torn leaves. You can uh, just toss those in or fold those into a salad uh, for uh, some additional aroma and flavor. Okay, the, the, the uh, other benefit with edible flowers is that they add a nice visual component to your food. Okay, now when it comes to uh, hot items, um, you know, uh, edible flowers are usually used as a garnish uh, off to the side or on top because they tend to be pretty sensitive to heat. And, um, you know, they will wilt and discolor and, and otherwise look uh, less than appealing, uh, which is contrary to uh, what we're trying to achieve with the edible flowers. Okay. Um, so, Ruth, in summary, think about a couple of things. Um, primarily, it's going to be the taste and, um, you know, how you might, um, how the flower might go with whatever you're pairing it with. And you can also control some of that through sauces or dressings that you might use, okay? Uh, and then think about the, the color or that uh, visual aspect that uh, comes along with the edible flowers. All right, thank you. All right, and another question from Kathy. How often should you sharpen your knives? Also, can you discuss uh, use of the honing tool? Okay, so, um, let me start with your second question first. Okay, so the honing tool, uh, we usually refer to as a steel, and it's going to be a, th that long cylindrical uh, tool. Uh, it's not always cylindrical, but often it is. Um, often made of metal, um, but not always. Sometimes they're ceramic. Sometimes they have a, a gold uh, or a, no, a diamond dust adhering to the surface and, and some different treatments. But nonetheless, uh, that particular tool is intended to be used daily uh, to maintain the cutting edge of your knife. Okay, so in other words, um, 
as you use your knife, okay, and we look at the cutting edge, this cutting edge will roll over with use throughout the day. And it depends on how much use you give it, depends on what you're cutting, softer items versus harder items. It can also uh, depend upon the material of your cutting board as they will vary in softness or hardness, okay? Um, so as this cutting edge rolls over a little bit, um, your knife will start to feel dull. And so this is when we use the steel, okay, which is the daily honing tool or maintenance tool. And you're going to um, uh, apply the knife to the steel in this manner, okay? So you're going to try to replicate the angle of your bevel or cutting edge. Start with your heel, and as you pull the knife through, you also want to rotate the knife. So you're going to pull down as you rotate, okay? And then you'll repeat that on the other side, again, maintaining the angle of the bevel that you have put on the knife, and then you're going to uh, rotate and pull that through. All right, excuse me a second. Um, as you do, or after you do that, feel the edge. Go ahead and just pull your finger perpendicular to the blade in both directions to feel um, if it's even, okay? And if you have a kind of a smoother side, it tells you that it's rolled over in that direction. If your finger catches more, it tells you that, right, you're, you're catching this edge that's sticking out. Um, so you'll want to just lightly straighten that up again by applying your blade to the steel, okay? Uh, until you feel it and it's even on both sides all the way up and down the blade, okay? Uh, another question that I get every, every once in a while is, <clears throat> How many strokes on the steel are required? Okay. And the short answer is one. All right. Uh, you know, in order to straighten up an edge that's rolled over, um, if you can nail it with just one stroke, hallelujah, right? Um, uh, it's a good day. Uh, but usually it's going to take uh, two or three strokes, maybe on each side. Um, you probably don't need to do more than that. Uh, I know that on TV, I can remember seeing these celebrity chefs that will they'll be gazing into the camera as they're just doing this off to the side many, many times because that's part of their show. Um, now, it's not a requirement, okay? If you can just do it once, maybe uh, once on both sides, you might have a nice even cutting edge, okay? Once you apply it, you also need to check to see that it's even. So again, if you see celebrity chefs doing all this fancy stuff off to the side and they don't even check to see if it's even, you know it's about the show, okay? Rather than the function. And uh, in my world, um, form must always follow function.
Okay. And so I hope that helps in terms of the use of the steel and what to look for when you're honing your knife on a daily basis. Uh, at home, usually once a day is fine. Okay. Maybe as you're starting out your, your work. Um, you know, in a professional kitchen, if you're doing a lot of work on the knife, on the knife, you might hone your blade multiple times just as needed. Okay. Now on to the second part of your question, Kathy, about uh, how often should you sharpen your knives? So when I hear sharpen, I'm thinking about stones. Okay. Whether you're using an electric tool um, that has, you know, grinding wheels or you are doing it manually on wet stones. Okay, that's sharpening, and that occurs as needed after you've used your knife enough such that this, this cutting edge has actually worn down, okay? So that, that cutting edge you had, right, is actually worn down on the top, and your knife actually becomes dull such that the, the steel uh, or the honing rod is ineffective. Okay, that's when you get to uh, sharpen your knife. And so for home use, that might be once a year. It might be twice a year. For most uh, folks, it's probably not more than that. Okay, uh, in fact, it could be more than once a year in terms of that interval. Okay, if you're in a professional kitchen, um, think about twice a year as a starting point and sort of go from there. Again, uh, just paying attention to when your knife needs to be sharpened, okay? And then one last uh, little word of caution. Uh, I mentioned earlier in today's program that um, whetstones can quickly damage a blade. So in particular, I'm talking about the coarse stones that we might start with um, if we're, we really need to grind some metal off of the blade. Okay, usually we're not starting out with the coarsest stone, but rather just the medium coarseness, and then we're finishing with a, a finer stone um, to sort of polish, right, the, the cutting edge. Um, I have seen knives that were sent out to so-called professionals um, who applied the stone probably to one of those large grinding wheels that a lot of professionals use, but a coarse one and really ground down uh, the, the knife. I mean, significantly um, such that there was probably um, the equivalent of 50 years uh, worth of metal extraction. And I'm not kidding you when I say that. Okay. Um, so um, beware. Uh, and choose your knife sharpener if you choose to send your knives out carefully. All right, thank you. All right, next up from Teresa. Hello. Uh, why do some vegan recipes use oil and others do not? Or uh, is cooking oil-free the difference between plant-based whole food versus vegan? Ah, Great question. Um, I love this question uh, because I, I think there are a, a couple of different um, facets to cooking or avenues to cooking that are sort of um, entwined here. Okay, so let me untangle these. Um, so the term vegan, all right, uh, at least once upon a time, and, and I'm still uh, one that adheres to this definition, okay? But once upon a time, uh, when this term vegan came about, 
not only was it aligned with plant-based cooking, but it was also strongly aligned to the politics of meat eating. All right, so and that had to do with um, the treatment of animals, uh, and then you know, so many other things. Um, and we can talk about the environment and probably other things as well. Okay, but um, a, a big part of that was the ethics that were associated with the treatment of animals, and um, and so uh, the, uh, today many of us use the term vegan simply to refer to plant-based cooking without all of the politics attached to it necessarily. Okay, I still associate um, the politics and that has to do with my own background. But um, um, so when we see vegan recipes or vegan food, um, basically anything goes, all right? Meaning processed foods, processed ingredients are very much a part of the history of vegan cooking, okay? Um, so in more recent years, um, we have seen the term plant-based come into use. And this idea of plant-based cooking <clears throat> is one that separates cooking from the from the from the the, the, the politics of vegan cooking, okay, if that makes sense. So we're really trying to focus on just using plant-based ingredients um, uh, when we cook, all right? Uh, and then we've got whole food plant-based cooking. And this approach of uh, whole food cooking, in this case with emphasis on plant ingredients, is one where we try to emphasize whole foods while we decrease processed foods or refined foods in our diet. Now, can I say decrease? Because for most of us, that's the reality. It's not the elimination of these processed or refined foods, but it's, it's um, the decrease of those things um, to some level that is satisfactory to the individual cook. Okay. And this is where we get into some very interesting discussions. And, and really at the end of the day, it's going to be up to you, the individual cook, right? Who is concerned about your body and your family's health um, to make the decision and to sort of draw that line or shape that definition around just what is whole food plant-based cooking. Okay, for you, because it probably looks a little bit different than the definition that the next person uses. Okay, um, now let's think about this. All right, to use unprocessed foods, period, is super duper difficult. And if we were to maybe sit down over a cup of tea or coffee or whatever beverage of, of choice might be yours and talk about this, um, we might even find that, you know, to start out at home with 100% with whole foods is practically impossible 
for most of us. And I say practically, okay, because we've got busy lives and limited equipment at home and, and so on and so forth, right? So that um, on a more practical basis, which is hopefully what we're trying to find here, right? Because we want, we want cooking to be convenient, right? We want it to be something that we can engage with happily and joyfully each, uh, each day and each moment. You know, we need, we need to find that middle ground. Um, and, and often that means incorporating some extent of processed ingredients in our inventory at home. Okay. Now what that looks like is going to be up to you. Okay. Um, so, I mean, if you want to do whole food vegan cooking, that's entirely possible. And in my book, that would include the politics of food. Okay. Um, if you want to try to cut the politics out of food uh, and just focus on the cooking part, then we call it whole food plant-based cooking. Okay. I hope that makes sense in terms of um, these, these terms, okay, and some of the history around the usage versus some of the contemporary usage, okay, of these terms. Um, now, when it comes time for uh, cooking that includes oil versus cooking that is oil-free, that is an entirely different approach to cooking, okay? Um, when we talk about um, oil-free cooking, uh, the first benchmark that we're usually talking about is to eliminate added oils. So any oils that you might buy in a bottle that you bring home from the store. Okay. And, um, you know, that is in itself challenging sometimes, um, but it's much more approachable for a lot of home cooks. Okay. Um, and then the next benchmark that some folks that have, um, I'll say bigger health concerns to deal with, uh, may be to uh, significantly eliminate fat from the diet which goes beyond added oil to include um, some categories of fatty foods like nuts and, and avocados, for example. Okay. Um, so this idea of cooking with oil or without oil, totally up to you. It's not related to plant-based cooking necessarily. All right. This idea of cooking with all plants you can do on your, on its own with added oil of any sort or amount that you want. Um, likewise, as if you're approaching cooking uh, in an oil-free sort of um, um, desire, you know, also consider the idea of reduced oil cooking, right? Or maybe eliminating oil in some areas, but using a little bit of, a little bit of it in some places where it makes cooking more convenient. Okay, uh, those are all individual decisions that you get to make. All right. And, um, and if you want to continue this conversation, please reach out to me at uh, support at ruby.com, um, including the politics of food. Um, all of this stuff is very, very interesting to me. Um, but again, they come down to personal ethics and health concerns and you know, other personal decisions. Thank you. All right. Uh, Tracy says, uh, hi. Um, I find it challenging to keep my middle finger knuckle against the blade and pinky and thumb holding the item being cut. 
Plus, hard to grip the items I'm cutting. Does the knife or height of surface matter? I'm petite. Tips appreciated. Okay. Um, let's see. Yes. So um, let's start out with some of the ergonomics of cutting. Okay. Uh, your the the height of the surface makes a difference, and uh, for you know the the average person right in this uh, in the United States is probably somewhere around what five foot nine inches approximately, and so things in houses like counter heights are generally made to accommodate that person, and so if you're significantly shorter or taller, then things don't fit so well. Okay, um, so you know, the, 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 the counter height is typically such that, you know, your, your elbows are a little bit higher than the counter and your arms are going to come down at a bit of an angle. Uh, not, not too much if you're, if you're tall or have to make, you know, or have to hunch over or not too flat or even angled up if you're shorter. Okay. Um, so, if you find um, that you're on the on the shorter side of average, and you know your your arms are closer to to parallel, then you might uh, want to figure out a way to um, stand on a platform to to lift your body up so that you can get in a more comfortable position when you're holding your blade. Okay, um, because first of all your wrists, elbows, shoulders, neck, back, hips, knees, and ankles are affected um, by your activities in the kitchen. And uh, certainly in a professional setting where you're doing a lot of volume uh, and a lot of repetitive motion, uh, those things can permanently damage the body. So please be aware of that. Uh, at home, for most people, most of the time, it's probably not a major concern, but certainly for some people it can be. And so please be aware of that as you're setting up for your kitchen work. Okay. So um, the, the kitchen surface or you, you know, relative to that kitchen surface is going to be important. Okay. And um, try to grip the knife in this manner. Okay. And then pull your hand around the handle it's going to give you, it's going to move your hand up a little bit onto the blade and it's going to give you more drive, driving force and control and a little bit less stress on the forearm. Okay. So that uh, is considered important. Okay. In terms of using the knife and, um, you know, the other uh, thing is if, if you've got small hands and you're slicing something that's um, large or tall, you need to make adjustments. And it might mean cutting that item down uh, a little bit further so it's not as tall or not as wide so that you can hold it more comfortably and safely, equally safely, um, as you cut that item, okay? And then... Um, the rest of it is going to be practice. It's going to be about finding a place that's comfortable. We're often going to rotate the body um, to, to, uh, uh, so it's at an angle, our shoulders at an angle uh, to the, um, the countertop. And I'm, I'm right-handed, so I'm rotating in this fashion uh, as I use my knife on the cutting board. 
okay? Um, or you might find, you know, some other way of, 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 of your knife versus your food moving across the cutting board. But um, so much of it is practice and it's finding what's comfortable for you. If something, uh, so as you're learning a new activity and holding your body in a different position and doing something new, you should expect some aches, right? Uh, that's reasonable to expect for, for new activities. But if things start to hurt, then that's not good, okay? And so uh, very often just a small pivot, rotation, different height, you know, that uh, creates different angles uh, can be much more uh, comfortable and therefore safe in the long run. Um, but again, in terms of the, um, the rest of the cutting, it's all about practice. Um, cutting is, uh, and developing knife skills, you know, more precise knife skills, uh, is one of the most challenging tasks in the kitchen. And uh, even in most restaurants, uh, prep cooks and line cooks have some pretty uh, shoddy knife skills, in, in my opinion. Um, it's, uh, um, but it, it's just, it's, a, it's a, a difficult activity that takes a lot of practice. So the more you cook um, and the more you are mindful about your knife practice, um, the, the faster you're going to move down that path of improvement. All right. So give those things a try. Thank you. All right. Next up from Kim. Um, I am taking this course to learn about leading a plant-based whole food lifestyle. I will not be turning in assignments or taking the exams. If I come to a graded assignment, do I just move on from it uh, to the next task? Um, so um, that, this, that's a good question. Um, you, you know, in the end, um, you know, you will have, uh, you know, access to, um, to, to the content. So, uh, you know, if you don't mind, you know, seeing, uh, a low course progress score, uh, you can just skip over things. Um, if you want to um, bring some sort of greater sense of completion to the course, then you can insert um, placeholder photos, and it could be of your cat or something else, um, into your assignments and just uh, upload those. And then, um, you know, in it, where there's a, um, an explanation that's called for, uh, just include some brief sentence that says, you know, I will not be including an explanation. And then just submit that. Uh, your grade will be a zero. Um, and then just uh, move on, you know, through uh, the next tasks. Um, that's going to uh, provide a more sort of a complete uh, completeness to your course. Okay. I hope that helps. Thank you. All right, Mary asks, do you press tofu before or after you freeze it? Um, if you are going to use um, a firm, uh, you know, extra firm, firm, sometimes medium firm tofu um, after freezing it, um, you know, I would recommend pressing it. I mean, arguably you can do it either way, but what happens with uh, unpressed tofu, 
um, is that when the water freezes, it expands and it's going to push apart that curd structure. And you're going to end up with a, a slightly looser uh, texture, right, in the finished product. Um, if you can press some of that water out, then you're not going to have um, those forces working against the uh, structure of the curd as it freezes, okay? Um, but you might try it either way and see if you might prefer one or the other, in, depending on how you will use the, the end product. Thank you. And uh, Mary asks, how long does tofu last in the refrigerator after opening? Um, you know, up, upwards of a week. It, it kind of depends on the tofu. The higher the uh, water activity level, so in other words, uh, the higher the water content, the, the greater the opportunity for bacteria to do its work. And we're talking about spoilage bacteria, okay? And... Um, so if you have a drier tofu, like, a, like an extra firm tofu, those may get you past a week. Um, some of the wetter tofus may get you less than a week. Um, now, I think it's important that, you know, as your tofu reaches, you know, three, four, five days that you're using all of your senses to determine whether it's still good to eat and start by smelling it because it'll develop an off smell. Go ahead and touch it because it'll develop uh, a, a different um, sort of a, um, almost a slimy texture that the surface starts to break down a little bit. And so it has this um, um, change in texture. And then if you leave it long enough, you'll see some discoloration, okay? But by then you'll be smelling it. And um, the other thing is if you're gonna store uh, an open container of tofu, uh, replace the water um, each day. Whether you use the tofu or, or not, just pour out the old water and put fresh cold water in the package and in whatever container you're using and then return it to the fridge. And that will prolong the shelf life. Thank you. Uh, Melissa asks, is monk fruit sweetener considered plant-based? Aha, so um, this is kind of related to the earlier question right around the, the vegan cooking and whole food, uh, plant-based cooking and so on and so forth. Um, you know, monk fruit comes from a tree, right? From a plant. So yes, it is plant-based. Um, now the monk fruit sweetener that we, that I typically see in the U S is a highly refined powdery substance. Okay, that's not whole food, right? It's not an example of a whole food, but it's certainly plant-based. So whether you want to use that or not is totally up to you, right? It just depends on um, what sort of a, a food, you know, ethic uh, you want to uh, develop um, around the food that you eat. Okay. Now, if you're dealing with monk fruit, the fruit straight off of the tree, then that's going to be a whole food. And um, so we have a different conversation. Okay. Um, and this is going to be true of, you know, other ingredients, right? I mean, you get to call the shots on whether you want to, um, you know, eat the product 
or not. Okay, and and certainly if it comes from a plant, it's plant based. But we have this other filter or this next question of how processed is it? How refined is it? And do I want that to fit into my plant-based philosophy around food? Okay, I'll leave that to you. Thank you. All right, and uh, the next question from Marcia. Uh, I made a great roasted kale salad with cranberries and almonds, uh, dressed with a lemon mustard vinaigrette. All great, except despite taking out the large stems of kale and massaging it all, parts were still too stringy to serve to anyone. Any suggestions? Um, well, uh, so you can try to use younger kale. Um, definitely, you know, as these leafy uh, vegetables mature, uh, the, the fiber and the stringiness gets more robust. And so that's going to be, you know, one way to do that. Uh, you can also, you know, tear it or cut it down. You want to cut it um, against the grain um, of the the fibers, and um, you know. So if you have the, the the leaf that grows out this way and and the fibers basically growing out in this direction, then you want to cut it across the grain so that you're shortening um, the the length of these fibers. Okay, which makes it a little bit easier to uh, chew. On the other hand, if you were to, to cut it this way along the fibers, even though you might still have the same thin strips or pieces of, of vegetable, you're going to have these long fibers intact and you're going to be chewing on stuff and eventually pulling it out of your mouth and placing it on the rim of your plate, right? Um, and so and take into consideration how um, the, the maturity of the leaf and then also how you might tear it or cut it. All right, thanks. And next up, uh, yay, thank you. I'd like to rock. I appreciate your feedback. Uh, thanks so much from Paris. Excellent. Thanks for joining me today and all of us for this live event. Uh, and Vanessa writes, um, uh, I'm a chef educator and nutrition coach and recently launched a coaching business. Congratulations. Uh, my question is how I can partner with dietitians as an additional resource for patients. Um, so, you know, this is uh, one that uh, is really going to be up to you and the relationships that you're going to cultivate with the dietitians that you come in contact with. And, you know, try to, to, to uh, align with uh, somebody or some folks that uh, who themselves embrace um, the um, uh, type of cooking that you do. Uh, and maybe you're plant-based and that becomes important, or maybe you're not plant-based and you can find uh, a more mainstream dietitian. But nonetheless, you know, find somebody who uh, sees the benefit of not only eating, but cooking so that you can then start talking about collaboration and working with the patients of the dietitian to, to um, teach them to cook, all right? And so really it's, it's a progressive conversation and a deepening of a relationship, um, you know, with the dietitians that you meet um, to find folks that are really in alignment or uh, 
um, with you, that, that are in alignment with you um, on these things that are important to you, okay? And uh, it sounds like as a chef educator, at the heart of that is actually cooking, okay? Thank you. Uh, next up from Tracy. Uh, so does the liquid that's being added to deglaze need to be heated first or at least room temp? This is a great question. Um, you know, as we add liquids to a hot pan, um, whether it's for deglazing or for absorption, such as with uh, the risotto cooking method, um, those liquids will cool down the pan. Now, if you're adding a small amount of liquid relative to a very hot pan, then it's not going to make much difference because the that small amount of liquid is going to heat up very quickly, um, and you'll be able to move on, you know, with your cooking. But um, if the volume of liquid is relatively large, um, then it's going to have more opportunity to cool down the pan. Um, sometimes that's a concern. Sometimes it's not, okay? If you're able to bring the temperature of the pan up again relatively quickly, okay? No problem. Um, certainly if, um, you know, you're using a warmer liquid, and I'm going to use the example of uh, the risotto method, right, where we add a liquid little by little um, to the rice or to the grains, and we'll add it, we'll add liquid, and allow the grains to absorb the liquid. We'll add more liquid, allow them to absorb uh, the liquid, and then continue that process until we reach the level of doneness that we desire. And um, in that context, we usually recommend that the cook use a warm or hot liquid. So you're gonna have that in a separate pan off to the side. Um, so when it comes to deglazing liquid, um, if you're adding just a little bit, again, say, oh, a, a tablespoon or two, maybe it's not a big deal. Um, but if you're adding uh, a cup, then, you know, maybe to uh, to warm that up a little bit is going to help you along in terms, terms of uh, the progression of your cooking. Okay. Give it a try, you know, and, and uh, just engage with the process and see how quickly the pan reheats see how these different food items act and react because different food items are going to give you a different experience. And then you're going to acquire this deeper knowledge and this, this uh, broader understanding of how to handle time and temperature when you're cooking. Thank you. All right. And then uh, Ellie uh, writes, uh, can you suggest any whole food, plant-based, quick, elegant desserts. Um, I've tried melted 100% chocolate, 15 seconds, dip fresh strawberry or mandarin orange, peeled, whole, dipped to get all slices quickly, one minute to make uh, fruit counters, uh, uh, counters bitterness. Okay, yes, you bet. Uh, chocolate dipped fruit, um, kind of in the spirit of fondue, but... Um, you know, it's uh, something that, that you control and you put those out. It could be a, a lot of different things that, uh, that fall into that category. Um, so, yeah, excellent example. 
Um, you know, in uh, our a couple of our Ruby courses, we've got um, a uh, um, you know a couple of pies or or torts that are based on chocolate um, that are plant based, and they have nice uh, nut crusts and um, uh, some other spices and flavorings that go into the the chocolate filling, and those are you know, they're um, not as quick as dipping things in chocolate, but um, they're pretty quick. And especially um, uh, nice is that they can be made ahead of time and they hold very nicely and they're elegant. Uh, and you can certainly dress them up uh, as you plate them so you can uh, make them fit different occasions. And uh, don't forget the use of edible flowers, which can really make the plating look beautiful. Um, but, you know, that's a suggestion. That, and I guess in that same vein, you can take that uh, filling and then present it in different ways. Like you can put it into a, a little parfait cup to make it uh, present like mousse or, um, you know, other um, edible or non-edible containers or vessels um, appropriate to the occasion. All right. So check those out. Thank you. All right. Uh, and then uh, next question. Um, how to make tofu from scratch, please. So this, yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic process is, is that you make um, soy milk, you strain um, the, the lees or the curds out, and then you add a coagulant uh, to the milk, and then you set it. Um, and um, as far as all the details go, you know, I would direct you toward, um, you know, one of the many, many uh, sources, uh, probably on the internet um, or at your uh, neighborhood library in terms of a, a book source. Okay. But that's the basic approach. All right. Thank you. And uh, next up, uh, have you used purple pea flowers for cooking uh, dry or fresh? I just discovered I had some uh, in a cabinet and that they have antioxidants. Uh, yes. You know, I, I've uh, used um, in a dry form in the past and um, yeah, you know, um, one of the things that are touted is um, their antioxidant properties. And, and uh, you know, no doubt um, a good food from that standpoint. Uh, but don't forget all of the other beautiful foods that have all of these other great phytonutrients um, that are found only in plants and um, benefit our bodies in so many ways, most of which are not yet understood right, by the scientists. Um, but don't wait to eat them, right? Don't wait until science tells us that they're good for us. Just know uh, that eating a variety of plant foods, uh, including spices, uh, will benefit your health in the long run um, and the short run as well. All right. Thank you. And uh, the very last question of the day here, uh, I'm getting bored with vegan whole food plant-based uh, instant beans kale tomatoes in an air fry uh, no sugar fat any ideas to make it more interesting so um yeah i mean it sounds like what you're talking about here is a particular kind of vegan or whole food plant-based cooking and this is one that uh, contains no sugar uh, or I'm guessing added fat is probably what you mean. Um, 
if and so if you are opposed uh, to using added sugar and added fat, then okay, um, let's go down the path of exploring some global cuisines that will bring in different flavors and textures um, and bring some interest to your plate. Okay, that's where I always go. I just uh, look at the rest of the world and um, find some inspiration. Um, if you're game to use some sugar and fat at least once in a while, then that in itself can uh, transform plant-based cooking because um, caramel, things caramelize differently. They just are simply different um, with the addition of sugar and oil. But again, I leave that to you. But um, otherwise, take a look at the rest of our beautiful uh, world uh, and get to know different ingredients and uh, sometimes different cooking uh, techniques and methods and uh, explore, expand that cooking horizon. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you all for joining me today. And um, I look forward to seeing you again. In the meantime, I wish you happy cooking. Thank you very much.